back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. A warm welcome from me, Mark Woods, the latest edition of the MVP cast brought to you in association with our good chums at Total Environmental Compliance. Check out their consultancy services for a whole range of environmental issues at tecompliance.co.uk. And of course, we are not available across so many podcast pl platforms that also includes the new Amazon Music podcast as well. If you like us, hit the subscribe button there and you won't miss an episode. Now at the NBA finals start tonight or early Thursday morning in UK time. The strangest season possibly on record, concluding with the LA Lakers and the Miami Heat squaring off for the championship. All taking place, of course, within the NBA's bubble in Orlando, where a select elite core of media have been chronicling this weird new world. And one of them joins us now, my good friend, senior NBA writer for The Athletic, Sam Amick. Sam, welcome and how are you? Mark, I'm doing great. It's good to hear your voice. First time, you know, we've connected since we were hanging out in Edinburgh. So good to be with you, my friend. Yes. I mean, I've been following your Instagram stories, stories from, from many of my other friends that are there doing sterling work. But paint us a little bit of a picture for, you know, for everyone that sort of, we can see the games. But outside that is is the bigger part of the bubble, and you've you've been one of the few that have been in there for weeks, covering this on a personal basis. What has it been like to be in this atmosphere in this environment? So I feel like it's come and it's had phases or stages. You know, the the answer to that question in the first ten days was I would tell you that it was pretty challenging. Uh, you know, and I I think I'm in the minority, but I. I had a fairly hard time with quarantine. I, I, I learned the hard way, or at least was kind of reminded that I, I don't really deal very well with isolation. I don't deal well with lack of control. And, and, and so right away, to be honest with you, Mark, not to get too heavy, I kind of had this, you know, this, this reminder that the mental health component within the bubble is a very real thing for everybody. And uh, I get to the back end of quarantine. I don't know if you picked up on this story on, on my podcast, or I think I wrote about it a little bit. I even, uh, unfortunately, got into a little bit of trouble on the back end of quarantine. I, a transgression. I needed, yes, there was a transgression. I, I, I needed some fresh air. And on the last day of quarantine, myself and, uh, and two front office executives, uh, Tim Conley, who runs the Denver Nuggets, and Mike Zarin, who runs the Boston Celtics, we, we, we kept 20 to 30 feet of distance, and we sat in our own doorways and just had a glass of wine just to get fresh air. But that was against the rules. You're not supposed to open the door. And so, you know, that was a, a fairly significant issue. And, and it really underscored right away that it was a, a harsh reminder that um, you choose to be in the bubble. And that means you play by the NBA's rules. And, and obviously, it's all with very good reason. The need to keep the virus out of the bubble was the most important thing. So the first 10 days were challenging. And then you get out and everybody who gets out of quarantine describes it the same way. You, you really feel uh, some culture shock where you've been in the same room for a week and now you're out, but you don't understand how you're supposed to live within the bubble. Where, the very basic things, where do I get food? Um, where can I go? Where can I not go? You know, I, I went on a bike ride um, 
there's a, the whole thing has a loop, the entire campus, you can rent a bicycle and go for a little bike ride. And, and I wanted to do that. But I remember the first time I did it, I didn't enjoy it at all because I was so concerned with taking a wrong turn and, and going outside of the bubble. Because if you do, then you're back in quarantine for seven days, you know? So the first 10 days, fairly stressful and I was not enjoying it. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Like I'm fine now. I've, I've enjoyed it. Uh, you learn how to live in here, the work stuff, which you can appreciate, you know, the access has been better than I thought it would be. Uh, I, I was, you know, coming in, I was concerned about my ability to do what I do and what I try to do in terms of painting pictures, telling stories, you know, having one-on-one interviews, things like that. You know, that stuff has been more feasible than I thought it would be. So I'm hanging in there. You can see light at the end of the tunnel now. We're about a couple of weeks out. And so, you know, I'm getting by just fine. How's the confusion element? You talked about worrying that you do the wrong thing. I mean, we, obviously there's, and this was made a lot of early on, There, there's different rules for for players, there's different rules for officials, different rules for media. I mean, it must be an element of like, let's let's not get confused here. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and within all of that, if I'm being honest, you have people who choose to break the rules. You have people who choose to bend the rules. Um, you have people, you know, I'm sure the NBA's PR office is privately, you know, very tired of, of complaints because every day you can hear a reporter saying, why is this that way? And why is this happening? And, and I understand both sides. You know what I mean? They've tried to do their best from the league standpoint, you know, during what is an unprecedented situation. You know, there was one league official at one point that, kind of bluntly said to a reporter, you know, essentially like, okay, do you have all the answers? Because we've never done this before and we're trying our best. You know what I mean? Like there was that kind of sentiment on the league side. And then you you do have, to be honest, here's a great example. As you and I sit here talking, I was looking for a quiet spot to chat with you. And there's a sports bar called Rick's uh, Sports Bar and Grill that is about a hundred feet from the media hospitality room that is essentially kind of the headquarters for the media on campus. So it's only a hundred feet away, but up until about two or three weeks ago, the media was not allowed to come into this sports bar. They only allowed us in uh, once some of the teams left and they felt like the numbers were such that they could create space for the media. And so from 5 PM to midnight, here in this sports bar, you you know, if you're not at a game, you can come in here and get a bite to eat and get a drink. And that's a luxury that for the first two thirds of the bubble was off limits to the media, but essentially everybody else was able to go in and have a good time. So that stuff frustrates media members. Um, there's also a feeling at different times. I mean, even right now, there's only two teams left and those two teams essentially have, you know, if I'm handicapping it, about 75% of the space on campus, you know, despite the fact that there's far more media and staff members in, in our particular quadrant. So, you know, there's not, I think what I've learned again, the hard way is none of this stuff is going to feel quote unquote fair. Um, but I am trying to be like a lot of others, patient and understanding with, you know, why they're doing certain things and, and kind of the, the need to, uh, to, again, keep that virus out. So I mean, obviously, the, the, the probably the cruel part is that you're on the you know, Disney campus. You can see the roller coasters in the distance. 
but they're they're in a world far far away for you know effective purposes or you know, hard right what is the distractions you know, how do you know what are people you've been playing this strange new sport that we see in your instagram that people won't be familiar <laughs> with explain what it is so so we've been playing pickleball which i had never even heard of before coming to the bubble and the backstory on pickleball is that longtime NBA official Scott Foster, who is, you know, for all intents and purposes, has kind of worn the black hat among NBA referees for a long time in terms of players not being very fond of him, coaches not being very fond of him, a lot of them. And, and then, but conversely, the NBA and the way they evaluate their officials has consistently rated Scott as one of the best in the business. And so you've had this dichotomy where his popularity rating was always relatively low, or at least it seemed that way. But then the league said, well, we don't care if you like him, he's good. And so now that's the only Scott Foster that I knew previously. Now you come out here and Scott um, is a pickleball aficionado and an avid player in his personal life. And I've learned that during a regular NBA season, when he's traveling the country and going up to Toronto to officiate games, that he is scheduling his personal travel schedule somewhat. He's, he's tailoring it around how he can get to certain pickleball courts and to live this second life that he enjoys so much. And he brought a pickleball net to the NBA campus. And there's a, a big courtyard that's pretty close to that media headquarters that I mentioned before, where he set the pickleball net up. He spray painted the, the lines, you know, with, with you know, actual uh, kind of regulation distance and make sure it was all official. And so we would see the referees playing this game. And it's, again, I, the, the funniest part is that it's really at the center of our part of the campus. So you're talking about, you know, if you sleep in and, and you happen to have a room in that part of the campus, you might be waking up to the sound of pickleballs bouncing. You know, it's, it's that type of a feeling. So over time, we in the media kind of you know, got the, the, you know, the courage to finally start engaging with the referees because you have this sense that you're not allowed to talk to them. That's how we've always been trained. But we eventually remembered that they're human beings as well. And we, we'd say hello to them. And next thing you know, Scott, to his credit, uh, was, was kind of going around teaching different reporters how to play. Um, you know, mixing in a little bit of trash talk because he has like a, an edge to him that is pretty hilarious. Like he'll teach you. And then if you mess it up, he'll, he'll kind of mock you lightheartedly. Uh, and so it's been wild. You know, it's, it's, it, I, I keep telling people recently, like, man, what if two things, what if Scott never brought the pickleball net? Because it really has become a, one of the few major stress relief activities on campus. And then secondly, I'm very thankful that Scott is, is good enough at his job that he's still here during the NBA finals, because if he wasn't, I think he would be <laughs> taking his net and going home. <laughs> is that one of the nice parts of this? Because I, I mean, you know, you know, we're at games. We're not allowed anywhere near the refs, and you know, may occasionally be a reason as a pool reporter to go and have a quick clarification. But generally, unless you bump into a ref somewhere in the road, it's, there's not an interaction there. I've had it at tournaments in, in Europe and FIBA tournaments where you might be in the same hotel and you do get a little bit more of a chance to socialize and see these people, you know, as as people. I mean, is is that sort of almost the key part from this that there is new ways to see folk because you're essentially 
roommates in, a, in the grandiose sense of yeah. things. Absolutely. I mean, that was the case, you know, even that quarantine story that I told you, there was kind of a, a leveling of the playing field element in terms of me and those front office executives where normally maybe they would have been more guarded, more at a distance, no pun intended, but then you're all in this together and you just get reminded that, you know, everybody's uh, human. Then on the referee side, I've really, it's been one of the highlights, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the highlights for me is feeling like I've gotten to know these guys a little bit. Like Zach Zarba has quickly become one of my, my favorite dudes on this campus. The guy is just, you know, gregarious and affable and, and, uh, and, you know, can be like a good time kind of guy. I mean, the refs have a good time. I have learned that much. You know, there's a pool area uh, that people will congregate at pretty late at night. And, you know, and, and you see another side of these guys that they typically keep to themselves on the road. So it has been fun. I mean, you know, to, I guess to go back to Scott uh, and share just a, a quick funny story with you, like he had shared a few things with me about how to play the pickleball game. And I felt like I was getting a little bit better. And then one day, uh, Richard Jefferson, the former NBA player and, and current ESPN analyst, was running a few minutes late to play as Scott's partner in the pickleball game. And so Scott needed like a filler person just for a few minutes. And I end up filling in. So I get on the court with Scott. Well, that's very intimidating. Scott's incredibly good. I mean, the, uh, the, the Washington Post, just to give you an idea, wrote a story that claimed that at one point in the bubble, Scott had a singles record of 197 wins and three losses. You know, like he was, he was unbeatable. And so I get, I get on the court with Scott and, uh, and he looks at me and all he says is, hey, Sam, don't F it up. <laughs> you know, and I'm sitting there going, "Oh boy, here we go." So yeah, I mean that part's been that part's been good. I mean the the media stuff. I mean you know that I've always enjoyed the just the media fraternity and and the, the kind of the the you know unofficial family of reporters that where you share a lot of space and and you're competing but you're also um, confiding and things like that. So it's been good. I mean you you like. So many people are away from your your wife and kids, and you know, there's this personal sacrifice that you know people have, have made. You said you choose to be in the bubble. When it comes to the players, and I guess also the coaches are, are very much in this as well. Evaluate how tough has this been on them to get through it, particularly when now, okay, you have two teams now playing for a championship. That's the kind of reward for it, but particularly for those teams that fell short. How big a deal has this been for them in terms of sacrifice, if that's the word to use? Yeah, I really think it is the right word to use. And I, I understand that I think people on the outside, so to speak, a lot of fans might roll their eyes at some of the complaining that has come from players and coaches and executives. And it's fine. I get it. I, I think that it sounds, I'm not trying to pull that card of, you know, if you're not here, you could never understand. But I do actually think there's truth to that. And even all the way up to the league office, I've talked to league officials where, you know, I've, I've questioned whether or not they truly grasp what they asked all these people to do in order. Now, I know it's a, you know, there are self-serving interests for everybody who's here. You know, it's people trying to keep their jobs, people who, want the NBA's bottom line to obviously not be even worse off because of what the pandemic has done. 
So I, everybody understands why we're here, but the personal sacrifice is great. I mean, the, the person who comes to mind for me the most is Michael Malone, the Denver Nuggets coach who has been very outspoken about this issue. Uh, every day we would do media, almost every day. You know, at some point he would mention specifically what day it was for him and his group. You know, he would say, well, here we are, day 57, you know, and just to remind people how long it had been. There was another day where somebody asked Michael about the sacrifice. And if I remember correctly, like the answer, it was this perfect storm of like personal things that he was missing on that particular day. He said something like, well, it's my anniversary with my wife today and it's my daughter's birthday. And it it was like all these things on that day that he was missing Um, because again, the, the NBA did not allow front office people or coaches to bring family or friends in until very late in the process. And honestly, by the time they did let some of those people in, it became so problematic when it comes to the timing of quarantine versus the logistics of, you know, like the Nuggets could have brought somebody in. And then by the time they get out of quarantine, they're maybe there for three days. Well, that's that's a lot to go ask somebody to fly across the country and quarantine for seven days only to be around your family for three. So for the most part, teams didn't take advantage of that. Now the the players got family and friends, uh, very select few after the first round. And so, you know, you'll see where that's helped, you know, some of the players, but you know, it's, it's very real. You took everybody out of their environment. uh, and, And not only that, you've got this backdrop, particularly for the players that's you know so disconcerting where you, you have what's happening in America from a social justice standpoint and, and the country, for lack of a better way of putting it, just feeling as if it, the whole country's on fire, you know, socially, politically, um, that tugs at everybody who's in here because you the, the fact, Mark, that this is in Disney World makes it even worse because you feel like you agreed to go to this little la-la land where you know, where because the virus is not in here, we get to socialize, we get to enjoy each other's company, we get to do all the things that people can't do uh, around most of the world right now. But you feel guilty because you're away from people. um, And you're not dealing with some of the the really challenging realities that are happening in the world right now. We see a lot of that. And obviously, as a a Brit, my understanding of that is, 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 what I'm seeing on television and you know, being married to an American, having an American family. I spend a lot of time there, but I don't claim to, to, to get the nuances as much as, as yourself or others would get. There has been this sort of sense of people being inside, wanting to be outside at this time. How, how much when you, obviously basketball is not as significant as what is going on in America but by any means, but what is your sense of I guess the quantity of, of, of that feeling or that, that, that people have felt like being in there at this point in time is not the right place, the appropriate place or the place that they want to be when they, they want to be out making noise, be on the streets, challenging issues in a, in a different kind of sphere. Yeah, I think it's real. I, I don't think it's across the board by any means. I think you, I mean, if you start with the most famous guy here, LeBron James, you know, LeBron has wanted to be here all the way through. Now, one of the luxuries that LeBron has is that he has been so outspoken 
on issues in the past. And he also has such a great individual platform that he never questioned his own ability to still make a, an impact on, you know, certain issues from within the bubble because he doesn't lack for a microphone. Now, some of these other players who had started to find themselves when it comes to activism, like a Jalen Brown of the Boston Celtics, guys like that, a Jeremy Grant of the Denver Nuggets, I think they felt like, um, you know, even a Russell, excuse me, a Russell Westbrook or a James Harden, they had gone to, you know, Black Lives Matter rallies, you know, in cities. They had tried to be in their communities making a difference. So I think those types of players felt some guilt and felt like, you know, it took away from some of the activism they could have been doing. Um, but it's, again, it's not across the board. I think that within all of that, you also just have this, I mean, Mark, you know, to not sugarcoat it. And again, I understand why the NBA is doing this, but the, the word guilt keeps coming to mind for me because the, the things that it has taken within this bubble in order to make it successful are the very things that would allow a country like America to get back on its feet if they were possible, both scientifically and economically, and specifically the testing. You know, we, we get tested every single day. It's become a very, you know, normal part of my routine, and I don't even think twice about it anymore. Now, if you go back a couple of months, um, to give you a quick personal story, you know, I with my family chose to go on a a little vacation to a lake with another family. And in order to be cautious, we wanted to take tests in advance of the trip to make sure nobody was at risk. And we had an incredibly hard time getting our hands on tests. And then once we did get our hands on tests, it took nine days for those tests to come back. And in the end, thankfully everybody was safe and healthy, but it, it created a great amount of stress for me and my family at that time. And to go from that world where, you know, getting your hands on test is just near, almost impossible and the turnaround time is just absurd to now be in here. And, and I mean, if you do the math, let's see, I mean, I came in August 21st, uh, you know, you and I are speaking on the edge of October. So, I mean, you're looking at, I, I've, I've gotten my hands on about 40 or 41 tests since I've been here. And that's just not reality. And, and but that this kind of alternate reality is what it took for the NBA to finish its season. And it kind of just it is what it is. But there's a lot of philosophical discussions, I think, to have with within all that. Does that I mean, so we saw the first presidential debate last night. Big news over here. As, um, more so, I'm sure you there. How much is that? Because it has become quite a political environment with with new discussions and the NBA has been a prominent part in this puzzle over the last few months inside the bubble is does politics come out there or do you guys insulate yourselves from what's going outside for any kind of self-preservation um you know it 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 does well certainly when you're talking to the players because you're going to have within politics is the discussion that they've tried to keep front and center about racial injustice um, so there's that. Then you have, you know, last night with the debates, that's a great question uh, or the debate. I'll be honest. Uh, <laughs> I have that last night was the first night that I went to bed relatively early 
and it had everything to do with the debate because <laughs> I was not in the mood. Normally, we would stay up late having a few beers, doing what we do, and I didn't feel like being around people. And I went to my room, and I turned the debate on, and I lasted about 36 minutes, and I, and I just couldn't do it anymore, and I turned it off. Um, and before that, you know, I was sitting in the media dining room, and one of my colleagues, you know, had brought up the debate, and, and I barely mentioned it. And even the mere mention of it made him so angry. And he was in the middle of the room, you know, just getting extremely worked up talking about, you know, what's happening in the country. And so it's definitely a trigger in here, just like it is on the outside. Now you put it this way, you're sitting in this media room and he was very loudly uh, being incredibly critical of the president. And, you know, you're not normally, if you're, if you're in normal society, you might look around to see, Oh boy, is there, is there a, a supporter who might now get up and yell back at him? Well, in this environment, by and large, and it's not across the board, but by and large, you're, you're going to have a lot of folks who are not fond of, of, of this president by any means. And so a lot of like-mindedness in that sense, but you know, it's there. Uh, you do shield yourself from it a little bit, partly because we, for the most part, had been incredibly busy, uh, you know, until recently, you had at least one game every single day, shoot arounds during the day. And then, and then when you would have the game at night before that, the other teams that weren't playing that night would have practices during the day. And you're trying to get to those and see what kind of stories you can tell. So, you know, it's somewhat shielded, but it's always there. Let's talk hoops and get away from the depressing stuff. But, sure. <laughs> uh, I mean, these playoffs have been, there's been some really strange parts. And I mean, the, the Bucks early exit, you know, the Clippers collapse against the Nuggets, you know, that sort of 180 degree flip. I suppose you could talk about the Nuggets resilience as, a, as something exemplary a, a, as well. And the flip side of that, I mean, what's, what's kind of stood out for you as this postseason and the bubbles progressed? Yeah. I mean, quite a few things, you know, the, the Bucks, um, collapse I did not see coming you know and, and it's obviously we'll see if it has any ripple effect on Giannis Antetokounmpo and what he wants to do with his future the Bucks can offer him a super max extension this summer and if he doesn't take it you know then you're going to have more and more noise about what the Bucks might do are they worried they're going to lose him next summer in free agency you know would they ever consider trading him so that is a major story you have the Miami Heat who took them out have been incredible. And their story, I think, is probably the most unexpected in the entire bubble. Jimmy Butler, a guy who, and you know the story, Mark, it just was not that long ago that he was widely considered the, again, like the Scott Foster among players, like a villain. You know, he was not uh, well-liked. The Minnesota experience was a disaster, even if you – understood some of Jimmy's frustrations with that environment. It, you felt like he, you know, a lot of people felt like he took that too far and he was unprofessional. And then you kind of look back on it now. And it's, I think it's a bit of an indictment on the young players that they were frustrating him so much. And, and that Minnesota environment, because he goes to Philly, you know, does some good things, uh, but you know, it wasn't perfect. And then ultimately they don't get a deal done in free agency. And he's such a great fit with this heat team and this heat culture that it might be the only team in the NBA that fits him this perfectly because Pat Riley being the guy who is the ultimate winner and a disciplinarian and 
they have this almost military-esque type environment within the heat that Jimmy loves because Jimmy's the guy that will wake up at four in the morning to go work out. He's got a lot of Kobe Bryant in him in that regard. And that, you know, they let him be himself, like he said so many times. So the heat thing stands out to me. Um, definitely give quick props to the Nuggets, you know, coming back from three, one in multiple playoff series is remarkable, whether it's a bubble or not. And they put up a fight against the Lakers, you know, even though it was five games, you could see moments there where it could have been extended to six. And, and at that point, all bets are off. So the Nuggets had a, an incredible run, you know, even you go back to that jazz series, you know, I don't want to forget about the jazz, even though they fell out, you know, in the first round, they played incredible basketball and Donovan Mitchell sparring with Jamal Murray was a highlight. So all kinds of stuff. And, you know, and now we'll see what happens here at the end. I mean, you spend a lot of time normally around the, the Lakers and they're going to these finals. I mean, a lot of scores are the favorites for this. And, you know, for, for me, you look at it, you've got two extraordinarily outstanding players around that pieces of the puzzle, maybe not a classically great team, but certainly within the context of the season, playing very well. But how do you assess their readiness for a title? I think they're in a good spot. Um, They have been fairly dominant in these playoffs. And that's with LeBron not being at his best on a consistent basis. He was fantastic in game five against the Nuggets, but you've had several games where Anthony Davis was the best Laker on that given night and where LeBron was inefficient from the field, you know, or uh, just not impacting the game playmaking wise, like he normally does, but they still have been dominant. You know, the role players for them, like with any team are going to be huge in this series. Contavious Caldwell Pope has been shooting the three ball really well. If that continues, that's a problem for Miami. Danny Green's defense is, Something that to me, even when he's missing shots, you know, means that he should be on the floor. Um, Dwight Howard being an agitator is going to be big in this series with Bam Adebayo, I think, being an X factor for Miami because Bam was pretty dominant, especially at the end against Boston. He had that terrible game uh, before the finale, but Bam's special, and I think he could be the guy that you know, allows the heat to make this thing competitive. But I also think that the Lakers size is going to give him problems because they can throw Dwight and JaVale McGee, you know, and those guys uh, his way. So, you know, it should be a fun series, but the the, the heat with them, I, I do wonder if, you know, Tyler Hero, he scores 37 against Boston, you know, it's just incredible. And then you see the following game that, once the Celtics made him a focal point, you know, he, he was pretty uh, neutralized. And so if the Lakers can do that and take the Tyler Heroes and the Duncan Robinsons out of the equation, at least to an extent, then I would think the Lakers would have an easy enough time getting through the heat because this is a, a different stage. And even though like Anthony Davis has never been on this stage, but I still just think, you know, his experience combined with his star power, he's going to be fine from a, I think from a poise standpoint, I do wonder about some of the heat players. Duncan Robinson was, you know, playing division three basketball not that long ago and now is in the NBA finals on the same floor with LeBron James and Anthony Davis. You know, I mentioned Tyler, um, 
you know, Goran Dragic, I think, is he'll be steady. So uh, just I'm curious to see when it comes to nerve and, and poise and things that matter like that, you know, how this looks. You wrote, wrote in a terrific NBA Finals preview today on The Athletic about this being a year of quote-unquote sadness and joy for the Lakers. And you know, we see the patch of KB on their jerseys every night. I mean, how much have those emotions, though, do you think helped them and channeling them to get them to this point? I think that, you know, it's funny. In terms of the players, I feel like it has helped them as a constant reminder of professionalism and competitiveness. Because say what you will about Kobe, you know, he he could be an incredibly tough teammate at different times. I think his leadership style was a topic of great debate on some of those teams, even the ones that won the championship. But in terms of doing the work and like LeBron says a lot, and and really what he learned in Miami from Pat Riley, the saying of keeping the main thing, the main thing, Kobe always did that. And I think, you know, first and foremost, that that's what has helped these Lakers, you know, because they talk about Kobe all the time, you know, like uh, Lakers owner, Jeannie Buss had told me in, in our interview the other day, that element of this Lakers playoff run has been organic. Like she wanted to make a point to say, like, I hope nobody thinks that this Kobe tribute and the way that he has been thought about and talked about for this Lakers team throughout the playoffs, that that it was somehow concocted or manufactured as some sort of marketing idea. This is the players themselves in the front office led by Rob Palenka, Kobe Bryant's dear friend and longtime agent, um, it's organic and it's real. They've chosen to lean into Kobe and everything he represented and have that kind of help lift them up. And it does seem like it's helped. I mean, Anthony Davis was talking yesterday, I think it was, I believe, about LeBron and the kind of championship legacy if the Lakers get this done. And you know, in his opinion, the Cleveland championship would rank number one. This would rank number two. But, you know, for, for someone of him who is... I think unquestionably are top five all time, possibly top three all time, to get another title, title number four. Where would that burnish and enhance his legacy? Or does does is there any way? I mean, do we sometimes overthink this that someone like him really needs to add anything else to his legacy? Well, he doesn't need to. It's just a matter of like the the great debate about where he falls at the end. I mean, some people have it as a top two discussion, Michael Jordan and LeBron James. And so, um, you know, and if you ask his, his buddy, Kendrick Perkins, who he played with, you know, LeBron's the greatest of all time. So I think it, it definitely helps if they win this thing. Uh, what strikes me about it is that for one, LeBron, the, the biggest factor or the biggest value would be that he went his whole entire career playing in the East and all the way through, the narrative with good reason was that the, the East was weaker than the West and that LeBron essentially was the benefactor of a lesser conference where he could always get to the finals. But then you saw in the finals that, you know, he ended up losing six times. And, and that, so that was kind of a weakness in his resume was that if you didn't play in the East, then he, you know, his, the scope of what he accomplished would not be the same. So for him to go to the West, have a disastrous first year where he was injured, 
Um, there was chaos in the front office with the Lakers. Magic Johnson steps down abruptly. Everything's off the off the rails. To go from that to getting to the NBA Finals and, and winning a championship in the West, I think would be a great accomplishment. Now, you can nitpick a little bit. Like, do we look at it the same in a bubble environment? Like, I'm not going to take anything away from him because of that. If anything, it can shows a, a great amount of focus and sacrifice for this particular title over the others. Um, you know, I, so I think that matters a lot. I also think in terms of the way he's remembered that his ability to be this great 17 seasons in, and I don't care what you say about the guy, like there are so many superstars that by the time they hit, 30, you know, 36, 37, I'm forgetting what he is now, that he, you know, I mean, Michael Jordan at this stage was not this dominant. He just wasn't. And uh, that part is is remarkable to me. And it's a testament to the work he puts in. You know, the other night we were sitting by the lake uh, close to where the Lakers were celebrating the conference finals championship. And, you know, we talked earlier, Mark, about rules. So there's this restaurant called the Three Bridges Restaurant in the middle of the campus that the media is not allowed to go to and the teams will go celebrate and spend a lot of time at. So the Lakers, and sorry, I got his age wrong. LeBron's 35 now. Um, The Lakers were celebrating and it was kind of fun to see just the revelry and LeBron's longtime trainer, Mike Mancias had stopped by a table where me and some reporters were sitting to say hello and talking to Mike kind of underscored, you know, again, the, the work that LeBron's put in, it's like, man, you're looking at this guy thinking since 2003, you know, this is the man who has woken up at all hours of the morning with LeBron to go do that work that has put them in, put him in this place to where you could play this kind of basketball 17 years in. Are you hoping that come the, the deciding game of the finals that they waive the rules and the media get invited to a celebration for once? <laughs> is there, is there uh, any negotiations on this? There's, there's negotiations about like a media night at the Three Bridges. Um, I, listen, I get it. Like in terms of the night of the championship, I think there's no chance because the, I hate to admit it, even though there's not that much media here, there are reporters here who like I personally would have no problem saying, you know, listen, it's off the record. Go enjoy it. But we're going to be there too. The problem is that hypothetically, you know, we've even talked about this, like, you know, journalistically and ethically, you know, we could say, hey, let us go hang out over there and we promise we won't report anything. Well, what if LeBron and Frank Vogel get into a fight and LeBron throws him into the lake? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like then as a, as a, then as a reporter, you're going to regret having ever made this deal because you're going to be going, oh my God, I cannot not report this, you know? So there's, it's a fascinating discussion. Uh, I think more likely Hopefully, we'll have a night where we can go have a good time in a different space. Um, but, you know, like I said earlier, if not, you know, we'll, we'll find our way and, and we're almost done here anyway. Last couple of things on, the, on these, these playoffs. I mean, we, there was a lot of talk about the start of this about an asterisk champion. Surely we've seen enough about how difficult this is that whoever wins this title has really earned it this year. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, that, that's how I feel. Um, you know, I, I think the asterisk would only be not on the champion, but, you know, and, and you can never quantify this. It would be on the path leading up to the championship, meaning 
you know, I think it, it still doesn't get talked about enough how many players had COVID-19 early in the process. The Denver Nuggets showed up to the bubble with half a roster. They had all sorts of players with COVID. The Clippers had a bunch of players with COVID. You know, the Lakers had some. Russell Westbrook has talked about his experience. Um, even lesser teams like Orlando, I just read something today about Mo Bamba and how as he tried to find his way back from having the coronavirus that he experienced muscle soreness and shortness of breath. And like that stuff, you know, we'll never know to what degree it impacted the players who might've come back and played. But even like, I look at Westbrook, like, I don't know. I don't know, you know, if having COVID changed the way he felt and put the Rockets in a bad spot. Uh, he also had, I think, a, a quad injury when he was here, so that didn't help. But that's where the asterisks would be. And, and I think because you can't get clarity on that question, then you might as well just not put the asterisks on it because I don't even know what it means. The NBA generally, and this is a this is a basketball issue, this is a sporting issue. We've seen leagues, you know, EuroLeague starts this weekend, no fans, you know, British league not even starting because you can't have fans. The NBA has invested a lot in having this bubble, but it, it's cost a lot. With that, you know, Adam Silver saying this week, January probably is the earliest this that next season starts. What's what's your feeling on the league's comfort level as they look forward to twenty twenty one? I would, <laughs> on a scale of one to ten in terms of comfort level, I would put it at about a a, a three. <laughs> um, I don't think they're very comfortable. I think that you have an ongoing discussion about fans in the stands because they, they certainly want to keep people safe. But these teams are going to, they are already hemorrhaging money and they're going to have to experience even more layoffs and furloughs and pay cuts than they have already if they're not able to get fans in the seats next season. And, does that mean you do 25% capacity, 50% capacity? I don't know. But it's a major, major problem because I think in general, it, I've gotten the sense that another bubble is not what they want to do, nor is it feasible economically. Like this is, this is a Band-Aid on a, on a head wound right now. That's what this bubble is. You can't do it again. Um, so I, I don't know what's going to happen here. You hear about the possibility of maybe an opening night uh, on MLK Day on January 18th, which would be fitting. But then you also hear that there's people in the room who are arguing for starting in March, you know, and as, as deep as that into the calendar in order to wait and try to get fans in. There's so much they can't control when it comes to the virus, when it comes to the status of vaccines, the distribution of vaccines, eventually, you know, within that there's saliva testing that, that they have hoped that would provide somewhat of a solution where if you didn't have a vaccine, you could have fans, you know, getting rapid testing consistently. So you would know that everybody in the building was testing negative and nobody was in danger. So just a, a ton of questions for them to face in the next few months. These are strange times indeed. The last couple of things, I'm not going to let you out here without this. We, talking of comfort, we, we went up last year when you were in your incredible grand tour of the UK and Ireland. And you know, given that we have you on, and I remember we met up in a very fine fish and chip restaurant. I want to know, what was your 
best and worst dish from our the culinary experience that you find? <laughs> um, first of all, man, that, Mark, that feels like it was five years ago, <laughs> which awesome. is crazy. And and also, I, I'm so happy that we did that trip when we did. As you know, my sister uh, moved to England not that long ago, and so we had gone to see her. And so it's just little did we know at that time that if we weren't squeezing that trip in then, that it wasn't going to happen. I mean, my my family might, you know, come and go from England in the time that we were only able to squeeze in that one trip. So that part is pretty remarkable. Um, culinary wise, I can't think of, you got to give me a second to think of a bad dish. The one that I enjoyed the most was a good old fashioned Sunday pot roast where uh, it was at a, a pub. Um, gosh, you got to help. I can't believe I'm I'm forgetting the name of my sister's town. I think you're probably going to remember. Somewhere um, in Yorkshire, wasn't it? Well, it's the it's the home of John Bon Jovi. I know that much. Uh, the hometown of of the Bon Jovi band, but it was yeah northern northern England, and um, it'll come to me. But it was a it was a pub in the middle of a, a very you know kind of classic English uh, grassy area in the valley, and we drove out about twenty thirty minutes to go to, uh, to have a, a feast on Sunday, you know, and it was all the basic fixings, but it was, it was grand and it was tasty. And, you know, and so that was probably the highlight uh, where like in America, you know, like you hear pub and typically that's grownups drinking beer and maybe a little bit of food. Um, what I learned, you know, in England, of course, is that there's a family aspect that is, is very different. And that part was cool. Like we had our kids with us and everybody, yeah, you might have a beer, but you're sitting around and it's it's a Sunday feast. So that was probably the highlight. I mean, the fish and chips at the place that you had recommended were very good. Um, I do think, man, I'm drawing a blank on what I didn't like. There was one dish that that I might have left a lot on the plate, but uh, that I for some reason I can't come up with it. But in general, you know, I mean, if, if you would get food on the go, that's when it would be a, a little dangerous. Very heavy on the fried food. <laughs> you know, and that part took some getting used to, um, but you know, all in all, it was good. I should I should reveal that when I was uh, taking this interview with Sam today, I said that um, could we do it buying on the hour, and I did get a text. But I said, "What on earth does that mean? What what what, what, what was your favorite <laughs> phrase that you discovered from our from our very um, disparate version of English?" First of all, it it, uh, it finally came to me. It's Sheffield is where my sister lives. And so Sheffield, of course, so somewhere in that area is where we got the good food. Uh, favorite phrasing. Yeah. Bang was a new one for me. Um, gosh, now, because it feels like it's five years ago, my memory is failing me. I mean, I remember my sister, Kim joking about how, even though they had only been there for, I think less than a year at that point that her, American friends, when she would talk to them on the phone, had already started giving her a hard time about different phrasings coming through. And and I don't remember what the specific ones were, but, but she was acclimating very quickly and, and kind of getting a kick out of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, I, what did you call it? Just the, the British English dialect? You know, I mean, that 
that gray area is, is pretty funny stuff. <laughs> the many dialects, the many, many yeah. dialects we have on our small island. Um, right. Simon is from The Athletic. All their terrific sports coverage is available at theathletic.com. They even have some of that British sport too. Um, you can also get some on Twitter do. at Sam underscore Amick. Uh, particularly, we've mentioned it a few times, I recommend his Instagram insights at SRAMIC. And also his very excellent tampering podcast, which is available anywhere you can download such things. Is there anything else of yours I can plug just now? I'm good, Mark. I appreciate yeah, it. That's the Phil um, King. The one question I suppose yeah. I should let you answer before you get out of here is um, give us a prediction for the finals. You know, I'm going to say Lakers in seven. Uh, I don't know if it'll go that far, but, you know, it could be a Lakers in six thing. I'd be surprised if the Heat can pull this off, but I, I do think that uh, the analytics community likes the Heat a lot. And so I'm trying to decide what I think of that opinion because if you ask players and coaches it's in in scouts it's fairly overwhelming that they think the lakers will take care of the heat so you know i'm kind of combining and merging those two viewpoints with my own opinions uh, so i mean i could see it being lakers in five um that would surprise me a little bit just like the heat winning it would surprise me but you know lakers in, in seven will be the uh, the official prediction Lakers in five. That's mine. But we'll see where it goes. Sam, thank you so much for your great coverage. Thank you for joining us. Good luck with the last couple of weeks of this marathon. And the finishing line is in sight. You can stagger over it and then have a beer at the finest restaurant you can possibly find in the bubble. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you. Be good, my friend. Thank you, man. That is it for this edition of the MVP cast brought to you with our sponsors at Total Environmental Compliance. Search them on Google or give them a follow on social media at TE Compliance Limited. You can get all our previous editions, of course, via MVP247.com or subscribe at your podcast provider. Or if you want to get in touch, reach out to me via Twitter at Mark Britball. Another edition of the MVP cast coming very, very soon. But for me, Mark Woods, it's bye for now. 